This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are as a people, inherently and historically, opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com, because you can handle the truth. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making this program possible. Tonight's special guest is author, journalist, filmmaker, photographer, adventurer, explorer, expert, philosopher, and passionate advocate for truth and discovery, Robert Young Pelton. He's the author of The World's Most Dangerous Places, License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror, Adventure Travel in the Third World, Everything You Need to Know to Survive in Remote and Hostile Destinations, and many more. In the following two hours, we'll take you around the world's most dangerous places, and the not-so-dangerous too. Robert Young Pelton, who's currently in Nairobi, Kenya, will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview, go to our website, VeritasRadio.com, and click on the subscribe button. You'll receive your login immediately, and we'll have access to everything we have to offer from day one. And don't forget to visit our Veritas store, where you can find MMS and our 8GB USB drives with Seasons 1, 2, or 3, and much more. And to get in touch with me, it's very simple. Click on the contact button of our website at VeritasRadio.com. And now, get ready to enter forbidden, deadly, and violent places around the world. Our guest has survived an assassination attempt in Uganda. He spent time with the Taliban and the Northern Alliance pre-9-11, the CIA during the hunt for bin Laden, and also with both insurgents and Blackwater security contractors during the war in Iraq. To discuss the world's most dangerous places, and to offer a very unique perspective of the world's problems and solutions, Robert Young Pelton is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere.
This is John Perkins, and you're listening to Veritas. Robert Young Pelton has become the inspiration and role model for a new generation of intellectual adventurers. He's an author, journalist, filmmaker, photographer, adventurer, explorer, expert, philosopher, and passionate advocate for truth and discovery. He's a former marketing strategist, product developer, and CEO of his own company. Robert's journey and expeditions accomplishing his time off turn into a career when he created the annually updated Robert Young Pelton's The World's Most Dangerous Places, followed soon after his humorous survival guide, Come Back Alive, and his autobiography, The Adventurist. Robert is executive producer and host of his series of highly rated specials for the Discovery and the Travel Channel. He has also been a featured speaker at the TED Conference, trained Navy SEALs in survival, and participated in secret special forces training. He's always overcoming extraordinary obstacles in his search for the truth, and that's our kind of guest. And to learn more about Robert Young Pelton and his work, visit his website, comebackalive.com. And directly from Nairobi, Kenya, I would like to welcome Robert Young Pelton to Veritas. Hello, Robert, and welcome. How are you? I'm doing great, Mel. Thanks. It's my pleasure to have you on, Robert. It's been a long time since I've been trying to track you down, and I found you today in Nairobi, Kenya. What are you doing there these days? I'm heading off to Somalia, and um, Nairobi is a, a convenient stopping off point for that. Yeah, because you're, you're south of Somalia right now. How, how far away are you from the border? Uh, well, it's about a uh, one-hour flight, and then to Mogadishu, and then a little bit further up to the north in uh, Bosaso, and uh, they call Puntland. But it's uh, about the only way in. You can you can come south from Dubai, but the plane is one of those Russian prop planes where the mm-hmm. pilot gets up and tunes the engine. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and by the way, beyond what I read in your bio, I, I know you had a. Let's just go back in time. I know you had a corporate career. And all of a sudden, your adventures turned into your new career. How did that transition happen? Well, I, I had uh, a company that did strategic planning and marketing, and I worked for people like Steve Jobs doing the launch of the uh, Lisa and the Mac and developed a number of companies. But I always used to take a month off, so I would work very diff- very hard and difficult projects. And then to relax, I would pick what I thought were the most remote places in the world and do expeditions there. And uh, after a while, I realized I enjoyed that more than my job. And the only catch is, of course, you have to figure out how to make money at it. And uh, I basically put together a business plan that said that I could probably survive just fine by doing things like books and documentaries. And um, when I was about 40, mid-40s, I essentially retired, but then started a new career. I started with a book deal, a TV series, and a fairly large web profile done by ABC News, and it took off from there. And I know there's a lot of people asking questions regarding that area of the world that seems to be taking a lot of prominence. But before we we go into Africa for, for a large portion of the show... I know you spent some time with the Taliban since since 1995, and you even interviewed, if, if I remember correctly, John Walker Lind, the American Taliban, at one point. As you know, opium production almost stopped prior to the U.S. invasion in, in 2001. Now opium production is at an all-time high. I'd like to get your opinion on this and, and the U.S. involvement in making sure they, they keep producing it. Well... I met with the Taliban back in 1995, and that was when they were just getting ready to take over Kabul, which was the, um, you know, the main town. Yeah. And they had not been interviewed before, and I thought this was somewhat of a challenge because at that time nobody had actually interviewed the Taliban, and uh, they were very different back then. They weren't as brutal, and they were more focused on getting rid of warlords and uh, bringing peace and stability to the country. And keep in mind that what we call the Taliban were essentially the people that we backed during the war with the Soviets. So it wasn't like they were anti-American or even worried that much about America. Uh, of course, after 9-11 and after bin Laden moved there, uh, they became our enemy. A lot of time in the beginning, and then I also spent a lot of time right after 2001 with a special forces group that fought on horseback. So I, I got to see both sides of the Taliban. Now, how was the the 
well, first of all, how did you get to Afghanistan back then? How did you penetrate to to interview the Taliban? Because as you say, they were very secluded, and we never saw them being interviewed in the West until you know you got there. <laughs> well, the uh, the way to go into Afghanistan at that time was through Pakistan. So mm -hmm. you would go into uh, Karachi or Islamabad, and then you'd go up into the tribal areas along the border. And at that time, um, I remember I, they didn't actually issue visas, so I just Xeroxed one from a visa I had got to see their enemy, you know, Ahmed Shah Massoud. Yeah. And uh, they held my passport upside down because the guy at the border couldn't read and, and waved me through. So <laughs> it was a little bit easier. So, so at the time, what was the impression of, in a lot of people listening may be saying, well, Mel, this is old news, but I think it's relevant to what we're going to be talking about because Pakistan has taken, uh, you know, some importance in the news since last year, in my opinion. How, what was the impression of the, the, the Afghani people, of the American people? Because as, as you know, we were their allies. We left. Did they feel abandoned once we left in the 80s after the Russians left the Soviets? Yeah, Mel, you bring up a very, very good point, and that is that uh, people who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. Yes. And and if we go back in time and we look at the 80s when we supported uh, a number of very fundamentalist Afghan groups against the Russians, uh, we didn't necessarily support their religious views or their political structure. We just wanted people who would fight and, and get rid of the, the Russians. And if they fought dirty, that was fine with us. Uh, those people, and, you know, we pumped in $6 billion along with the Saudis, Uh, you know, respected us for defending their freedom. And when I first met the Taliban in 1995, they had nothing but good things to say about America. Yes, they had been abandoned because, as you remember, Afghanistan, after the Russians left, fell into civil war mm -hmm. and, and chaos. Uh, you know, I was invited to fight with them. And, you know, they just felt that Americans were got it, that we, we supported freedom. We didn't want tyranny. Uh, we didn't want a foreign invader coming in and, and telling them what to do. Uh, when 9-11 hit, we were more focused on the Taliban's view of women's rights and, and their sort of backwardness and tribalness, but we forgot that these people came from Pakistan, that it was essentially Pakistan who funded and supported the Taliban, who were created in the refugee camps there. And we never really talked about Pakistan as the enemy, even though Pakistan, even to this day, supports arms and endorses the idea of an Islamic uh, revolution inside Afghanistan. And I remember when the, the, and this may sound irrelevant again, but I remember one thing that really made the West irate was when they uh, destroyed the, the, uh, the, I forgot that the actual statues, the Buddhist, the Buddhist uh, yeah, ba yeah, Bamiya, exactly. Uh, why did they do that? Is it because they just didn't want any other religious figure there? Or is it because that millions of dollars were being funneled to, to remodel them and they were saying, wait a minute, we're such a poor country, we, we don't like you to do that when the whole country is starving? Well, you've obviously read my book because most people wouldn't know that unless they read my book. But uh, you mentioned the opium growing as well. Yes. Uh, back, back when the Taliban actually took over Kabul, uh, it was the first time they were out of their realm. And, and you know, the... the Taliban were Pashtuns, they were from the south, mm -hmm. uh, they were very conservative. When they got to Kabul, which is very modern, uh, they weren't well received. And when they pushed further north, they hit the Shia area, which is the uh, Hazara, which goes up into the Bamiyan Valley. And at that time, there was a drought and there was a lot of starvation. So the Taliban would go to the aid organizations and say, okay, we need money, our people are starving. And they found a project in which a, and I don't know if it was Danish, but it was a, it was a Northern European aid organization was going to donate something like $3 million to restore the Buddhas, but they wouldn't give it to the Taliban to feed people who were starving. And one of the commanders, who's sort of a wacky guy, uh, said, okay, you're going to just restore things? Watch this. And boom, blew up uh, the Buddhas, which were an ancient, very beautiful monument uh, that To them, it was a graven idol. They could care less about, you know, these religious symbols. But the point they made was very clear, that they were in desperate straits. The Afghan people were starving. Uh, the, the West had ignored them. But we saw it basically as an affront to tourism and, of course, to, to religion. Right, right. Hamid Karzai, the, the president, what's your take on him, by the way? 
Well, Hamid Karzai is an interesting fellow because he is very typical of what the CIA installs when we take over a country. Yes. And, you know, I've been in special forces training. I've never been in the military, but I spent a lot of time with the actual process of how we overthrow countries. And, and what, what we do is we find a, an educated, compliant, hopefully English-speaking person to put in power that'll bring in a democratic process. And Hamid Karzai was that guy. His, his brothers campaigned very vigorously in Washington where they ran restaurants. And Hamid Karzai had no military background, no political background, but he came from a good family. Uh, what has happened, unfortunately, is that Hamid Karzai has watched us drop the ball and he has picked up his game in terms of the political wrangling. He's made new friends with Pakistan, with China, with the almost all our enemies around, and he knows we're leaving, so he's not our friend anymore. So, unfortunately, Hamid Karzai has taken advantage of the fact that we put him in power, and he will be in power after we leave. Now, are you ever going to leave? Well, America is going to leave. We we really have no economic, strategic, or financial interest in Afghanistan other than it borders Iran. And we went there to defeat al-Qaeda, which is a foreign group of fighters that were based in Pakistan and in Afghanistan. Well, we, we achieved that. We won the war in two weeks. Most people don't realize that we had a formal surrender of the Taliban after special forces basically bombed the bejesus out of them. And we were done. But we decided to stay and to do our sort of rebuilding and infrastructure improvements. And we stayed too long. We stayed for 10 years. And now the Afghans are tired. They would like us to go home. And we will. But the point is that we... We have left behind a better Afghanistan, but not the Afghanistan we thought we would leave behind. Well, we can go back to the 60s and 70s when they really were happy then. What happened? What, why, what was the trigger to, to the Soviets? Of course, they wanted to, 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 to have the country for themselves. What is it that attracts so many powerful countries to get into Afghanistan? If we remove the Taliban from the equation. Well, it's, it's actually very interesting. You know, the Russians went there because they felt it was the first step to a warm water port in Pakistan. Mm. And the Russians were actually quite smart. I mean, they had puppet governments. They, they worked with local indigenous groups. And it wasn't until halfway through the 10-year period they were there that they realized, okay, we need to get out of here. So their solution was to create about a 400,000-man Afghan security force. We're doing exactly the same thing. We're, we're taking the playbook step by step. And when we pull out, and, and more importantly, when our money pulls out, uh, there will be a civil war between the North and the South, because we artificially inserted sort of a Pashtun government, but unfortunately the military is made out of Tajiks, which are the Northern ethnic groups. And Karzai has alienated most of the North, and what, what, I, what I predict, and once again, if I was that smart, I'd be in the stock market, but th there is going to be a reckoning, and that will happen after we pull out in 2014. Can you please uh, be more specific? What do you see? What do you foresee happening? And I asked you because, as you know, we had the incident a few weeks ago with the the uh, Marine who who killed, uh, they're saying 16 people, but he's accused for of 17. So 17 people murdered. Um, do you think this had a, 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 a tremendous effect on what things are going to look like in the next few months? Actually, no. The, the interesting thing about what's happening in Afghanistan is that Afghans are used to having foreigners there. This is not unusual to have American troops there. Uh, it's not unusual to have civilian casualties. I mean, we've killed up to 120 people in one airstrike in Shindat. Mm. This particular activity was a was a local training program for um, village security. And my guess, and this may may come out in the trial, is that they have very good intelligence. And I think the houses that he went to were involved in an attack the day before. This is a very isolated case and in a very bloody history in Afghanistan. What the Afghans really want is self-determination. They, they want to get on with their lives. They don't want to have a military force there. And ultimately, they should, you know, get on with their lives and not have a military force there. We, we serve no purpose in Afghanistan right now. We're not, we're not you know, defeating al-Qaeda because there is very few al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan. But do the Afghan people even know that this happens unless they're local? And I say this because I, I presume they don't have a lot of, of communication, uh, you know, people having TVs and radios. Do, do, I guess what I'm asking, do news spread like wildfire when this happens? 
Yes, and, and I would I would disagree. I would say that Afghans are actually very sophisticated. They have something like three dozen television stations in Kabul. They have multiple radio programs. They have the internet. They you know they text each other. Uh, they have a good telecommunication system. But my point is is that remember you had ten years of the Russians brutalizing Afghans, and we've had ten years of of Americans being less brutal, but a number of civilian casualties. Uh, the Quran burning, burning was actually mm. more of a, an upsetting thing to the Afghans than this uh, particular murder. But I, I guess my point is, is that we went there and we liberated them. There, there were literally thousands. I mean, I was in convoys in which thousands and thousands of Afghans were cheering American troops and Northern Alliance soldiers who had liberated them in the north from the Taliban. Um, that was the high point. That was like Europe in 1945. When we stayed and we decided to create this sort of uh, reconstruction idea, we injected graft, we injected, you know, favoritism, we created the Karzai government, and it turned into a very different animal. We're not really fighting a war there anymore. We're simply managing money and managing corrupt. The exact same people the Taliban came to kick out, those warlords that profited off of uh, the Russians. So we just stayed too long at the party. See, that's the question. We win the wars rather quickly in Afghanistan, and the same thing could be said about Iraq. We went there and, uh, you know, things changed rather quickly. But why is it that we have to stay so long? Is it because we don't have a, an exit strategy? No, this is, a, this is a really important point for American politics and, of course, the way we view warfare. We want uh, presence in these countries. And... America is the most powerful nation on earth. On earth, it's the richest country on earth. It has the largest cultural impact around the world. So when we roll into a place like Iraq, we're getting rid of a you know a decrepit old dictator. The point we forget is that freedom is not something we dictate. You give people their freedom, and it's up to them to take their freedom. We we try to help them, but we do it in a military way. So we also try to inject our culture too quickly. Uh, as you saw in Iraq, the, we fired the entire Ba'ath Party. You know, we basically put half a million Iraqis into unemployment, yeah. and they formed the insurgency. In Afghanistan, we liberated the North. We should have left them to their own political process and then stood back and said, hey, if you need us, give us a call, but you guys are on your own. And Iraq, we say that we're going to be leaving, but we're going to have the uh, largest U.S. embassy in the world there. Why? <laughs> Uh, well, at the time that it was built, we, we had this fantasy that Iraq was going to be Disney World and everybody yeah. would be loving us and, you know, welcoming us. And, and what we found out that Iraqis have actually been getting by just fine since Hammurabi. You know, we, they don't need America to tell them how to run a country. They've got plenty of resources. We've got plenty of oil. Uh, we felt that we would have a very, very influential role in Iraqi politics. We don't. Secondly, we, we moved our strategic center from Europe and Asia into the Middle East, which was the correct thing to do. And I think the Bush administration in particular thought, well, we'll just move all these jets and all these people into bases in Iraq and Afghanistan. We, we never predicted the amount of pushback we would get from the Iraqis and also from the Afghans. We will have bases, but not in the strength that we were originally going to. Well, let me ask you, are things better in and let me say that I was not a fan of Saddam Hussein, but are things better in Iraq now than they were with Saddam? Oh, absolutely. They, um, you know, you had a kleptocracy with uh, Saddam Hussein. You had one man basically doling out jobs and, you know, dictating what would happen in that country. Now you've got a chance for every Iraqi to do whatever he wants, start a business. There's still tension. There's still ethnic divisions. You've created a new country called Kurdistan. Yep. Uh, you know, things are healthy. I mean, the oil industry is getting back on its feet. I, I think I wouldn't have done it that way. I mean, I would have been more covert and more surgical about taking out Saddam. And I would have accepted that, like in Libya, you know, democracy is very messy. And it's not uh, it's not for us to dictate how it ends up. Mm -hmm. But but Iraq is better. Afghanistan. It, Afghanistan is much better. I mean, we pumped in billions into that country. If If you compare Kabul today with its flashy cars and traffic jams and glass buildings, compared to when I first went there in 1995, where there were just horse carts going down the road. It's, it's dramatically different. And of course, you know, with Saddam, he basically controlled the tribalism that, that they had, the, 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 the Kurds, the Sunnis, the Shias, and he was, can we say, the glue that put them together with the hammer, um, right? Yeah, well, you, you, but we had to replicate that same 
secret police system to keep it together now. I mean, That's it, right. It's, it's a very brittle country. And, and, you know, go back in Iraqi history. It hasn't been this Garden of Eden. It's been a very contentious and divisive place. And you mentioned Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. I have to ask you, you know, I was one of the people who used to think, oh, look at this dictator. He's been there for four years. But I started looking into the, the country and, and, and how they gained their independence. And I, I found a few things that uh, are totally different than what we're being told here in the West. And I wonder if you can enlighten me there. You know, their, their literacy rate, the, the medical, the, the, the fact that, that Qaddafi wanted to, to make it a, a, a huge garden by, by, you know, putting uh, water all over the place to, to make the desert uh, flourish like, like Israel did. Uh, Plus, they didn't have a central bank. They wanted to transact in gold. He wanted to, uh, you know, he put 50% of the, the funds to put a satellite to help African countries have their own telecommunication system. All that stuff is not being shared in the, in the West, almost at, as if uh, we're trying to demonize a person who, yes, he was a dictator, but he was not as bad as, it, as we're led to believe. What's your take on him? Well, I, I've met many dictators and I've sat and discussed, you know, politics with them. And, and I have to say that, I, I obviously don't support dictators, right. but but great great things have to be done by autocratic forces. You you will never get a democracy to come up with a singular idea that benefits everyone. They'll argue about it and they'll water it down. Uh, you know, Saddam Hussein educated a lot of people. Obviously, his friends, not the Shia. Uh, even the Soviet Union. You know, there's more PhDs in the Soviet Union than there are in America. So you, you dictatorships create big ideas. Now, at the same time. Libya was also backing dozens of ugly insurgencies around the world, uh, you know, trying to cause problems and sort of destabilize Western-backed governments. So there's a plus and a minus. So the plus is that a dictator can say, okay, everybody goes to school. Everybody gets free medical care. Uh, let's dam this river and let's do this and do that. And obviously the oil in both those countries created that uh, opportunity. Right. When you go in there... You have to look at the you have to look at the economics. So if you have let's say one billion dollars and you give it to one man, that that person thinks big, and he brutalizes anybody that gets in his way. Now you have a billion dollars and you have a billion people. They only get a dollar. So where do the big ideas come from? And you know, evolutionary, I mean, these countries came from nothing after World War Two. <laughs> built their infrastructures, and then the person in charge decided not to go home and just stay there and keep running his country. Mm -hmm. I think Gaddafi, in his later years, earned the title of wacky Gaddafi, just like Saddam Hussein in his later years was getting very paranoid and very brutal. How do you get those guys to leave? They, they basically control the entire uh, population through br brutality and police forces and jails and whatever. So I, I think what they call it, assisted regi regime change is somewhat healthy. And we've seen it in the Arab Spring. We've seen countries just fall down like dominoes. Unfortunately, what's left is a, is a horrible, violent, messy solution. I mean, Egypt is not going anywhere fast. There, there's no clear you know, political structure. Libya is a bigger mess than it was under the dictatorship. Iraq is a very violent country. Afghanistan's heading into chaos. And, mm -hmm. and you have to look back at our own country and say, okay, what happened after we kicked out the British? You know, we went through these spasms where there was a civil war or, you know, a number of problems until we got our act together. Well, that's exactly my point, And that's exactly why I love to have you here tonight, because it seems that whenever we try to put one of these uh, people there, things uh, get worse. And I'm not talking about the Arab Spring. I'm talking about we can go back to the 1950s with uh, Mossadegh in Iran in 1953, when he wouldn't agree uh, with the demands that uh, British oil wanted. They they got rid of them and they put the Shah. And we saw what happened in 1979. And the same domino effect seems to be happening now with the Arab Springs, but that's nothing new. Well, I think we ha we have different models. I mean, essentially... When we discovered oil, when the British discovered oil, you obviously want to create the idea of ownership saying, okay, that guy who lives in a tent, tell him that he owns this region, sign this contract, and let us suck the oil out. No. So we created a number of dictators, and we also did this in Latin America, of course, back in our early days. And then when we realized how badly these people were abusing that, we then said, okay, well, that's not working. Let's create a quasi, you know, democracy and so we bring in gentler rulers and then when they start abusing or stealing too much 
we then put somebody else in. Uh, I think times have changed. I think we try to pressure people and we try to manipulate and we try to do things, but we don't really try to run countries anymore. You know, we, we tried it in Iraq and you saw what happened. Uh, we've tried it in Afghanistan and you see what happens. We, we, we're just not good at running other countries. We may not be good running our countries, but I think we're doing it as proxies. I mean, Saddam Hussein, we put him to get to war with uh, Iran. We provided weapons to both sides. Then in 1990, uh, you know, we, Kuwait was land drilling and he went to, to the U.S. and, you know, to the ambassador, April Gillespie, and said, this is what's happening. Do I have a green light or not? And she didn't say anything. So he assumed that he could go and invade and boom. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the Russians actually perfected this. They would support both sides. So they, they won either way. It's like yes. doubling down in Vegas. Right. So, and right now, you, we have quite a robust series of proxy activities in which there's no Americans on the ground. You know, there's no American faces, but we're actively involved in insurgencies and, and changing regimes. I think what we've seen Obama has learned is that you don't put American troops on the ground anymore. You know, they're not effective as long-term policemen you know they're better used as soldiers for winning wars and politically it's devastating every time you have an american casualty so places like libya uh, places like somalia you know we we see drones we see people right. on the ground organizing so that's the new warfare and what started the whole thing was it the the uh, black hawk down in the 90s in the early 90s with clinton and what they realized what happened if we get involved in in uh, somalia for example is that what's happening now well, actually, what's interesting is that Black Hawk Down is one tiny incident that mm -hmm. happened, but that's not why we went there. What what uh, Bush Sr. did is he saw the uh, starvation there, and he saw the uh, militia stealing the food at the wharfs in Mogadishu, and he, along with the UN, sent in a force of troops to allow the food to be pushed into the hinterlands, mm -hmm. basically to sub subdue the militias. That was a very successful program. But when they tried to capture, you know, Aidid and, and some of the top leaders, we then got into this sort of sideshow, this military event, and that's when Clinton got cold feet and pulled people out. So, but we have to remember that our mission in Somalia was successful, and our mission to, to capture Farah Aidid failed. So, on the on the large scale, we saved a lot of people from famine. On the tiny scale, we had a, an aborted mission with a covert group of people that happened to be filmed. Before we talk about the Arab Spring, I'm curious. Somalia has a huge coast. We know the the pirate, the the piracy problems that are all over the north, northeast Africa, East Africa. What's your take on on what's happening to that country right now? Is it in chaos still? Uh, the south is in chaos, but it's getting better. Uh, Amazon has poured in more and more troops with U.S. and European money. Al-Shabaab is on the run. They've joined with Al-Qaeda, which is going to make them sweat even more. There's an active drone program there. Uh, we're using proxies instead of U.S. soldiers. We're using Ethiopians, Kenyans, and also local proxies. The north is actually fairly stable, you know, Puntland and Somaliland. The piracy is actually centered in a very small area in the center. And, and we, with Somali Report, the website I run, we talk to pirates on a daily basis. And it's this weird little anomaly because there's no law in the central part of Somalia. And a lot of British companies pay very high ransoms if you grab a ship. So you have these guys going out, grabbing ships, getting paid millions of dollars, going back out, grabbing some more. Uh, it will vanish. In the next two years, piracy off the coast of Somalia will vanish. There's a lot of very robust activities now uh, to defeat them. And that's where I'm going uh, this week is to a town called Eel, which was the pirate center in 2008. And now there's a Puntland Marine Force that is pushing out the pirates and bringing stability, airstrips, aid, things like that. So it's changing. I remember, I think it was a year or two ago, that so many powerful countries around the world were deploying their military ships to that area, the coast of Sudan, Eritrea, Somalia, supposedly because of the of piracy. But mm. even China, that has, has never left their shores militarily that way, was there a year or two ago. Do you know what the real reason was? Well, as you, if you look at a map of oil deliveries, mm -hmm. you know, if you look at the Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, those two areas, the Gulf of Aden and the Arabian Sea or the Iranian Sea, are the key areas for the transshipment of oil using super tankers. And 
it's a very strategic playground. You know, if, if you wanted to mess up Europe or, or America or any of the countries that depend on oil from that region, all you have to do is start sinking ships. So you want to have a military presence there because it's sort of a double-edged sword. Like you need us to protect you, but we can also stop you from movement. Uh, the piracy problem allows those people to play on that playground without rattling their sabers. It, it, you know, in the long run, piracy is not that much of a threat to the flow of oil, you know, either from Saudi Arabia or from Iran. And it's a chance for these people to actually go out there and fire their guns at people. But it's not defeating piracy. Piracy is defeated on land. Well, but was a few days ago, I think you reported on your, by the way, great website that you also have, SomaliaReport.com. For anybody who's interested in learning more about what's happening there that you don't see in the Western media, go there. You reported that two fishermen were killed by the Navy. Can you tell us more? Yeah, well, you know, you have the world's most powerful military, and you're dealing with pirates who are in basically, you know, speedboats. Yes. And uh, pirates carry guns, and so do fishermen. And sometimes if somebody hears of a pirate report, <clears throat> they'll send out a helicopter and they'll see a small boat speeding away and you'll see men with guns and they'll fire on it because they're allowed to, you know, if an act of piracy is taking place, they're allowed to fire on it. And then they find out that they're fishermen. But, you know, as we keep saying is the difference between a pirate and a fisherman is a pirate is holding a gun, a fisherman just threw his gun overboard. Mm. So it, it's kind of a no-win situation using that sort of heavy hammer against a small fly. Well, piracy is not a an inclusive thing of, of that era. I remember I spent time in Singapore in the mid-90s, and I interviewed a Russian captain of a, of, of a commercial uh, vessel, and I took a tour of the ship. I, I was not able to, to uh, film. I don't know why they wouldn't allow me. I think this has to do with giving the pirates ideas. But he did not carry a gun, and uh, he told me that there's a, you know, piracies all over the place in the, in, around Malaysia, Indonesia. That area is full mm -hmm. of pirates as well. Yeah, you you have a different kind of piracy in the Malacca Straits where, <clears throat> excuse me, they have uh, basically robbery. The, the ships move slowly, mm -hmm. they loot the cargo, and they take off. In Somalia, you have them holding the ships. Excuse me. <clears throat> you have them holding the ships because they can get ransom payments. In West Africa, you have a lot of fuel thefts and, and basically robbery again. And there are a number of piracy reports all over the world, but you know, very sporadic. You need to be able to get away with it. So in Malacca Straits, you can come out, hit a ship, and go hide. In uh, the Indian Ocean, you have a, this, a place the size of Europe with less than a dozen ships patrolling. And in West Africa, you have a lot of mangrove swamps and places where you can hide. But it takes time. But what happens is that the world community gets motivated. They start spending money. They bring in training and troops, and then piracy vanishes. I'm looking at a uh, an African map here, and I can't help but see how many countries there are. And I bet there's a lot of contrast between countries that are wealthier than others. Do you see ever the African Union really taking place and the, the entire continent uniting? Or is that something that the West never wants to see because we can never see them united? Uh, that's a good question because... Africa has over 50 countries. Yes. Some are very, very wealthy, like Libya. Mm -hmm. Some are very large and poor, but yet they have resources like the Congo. Some are very modern, like South Africa. Uh, it's really hard to say, okay, this is an African country. The African Union is trying, and they are somewhat successful in preventing long-term effects of coups, but they need to be funded by the U.S. or outside agencies. What's happening now is that China is taking over Africa because That's right. of all the resources there. America has set up a, a unit called AFRICOM, which I think their motto is do no harm, that can't even figure out where to base their Navy at. So they just kind of sail around and do dog and pony shows. We're, we're far too late to the game. So what I'm seeing is that one by one, these African countries will start to realize the benefits of their natural resources, but we may be too late you may see all that stuff going to China. Yeah, same with, with China. They're hoarding all the, how do you call it? I forgot the, the, the actual precious metal that, that's used for manufacturing computer parts, um, uh, rare earth materials. They're basically yeah. taking a lot of that there. But Uganda, you've heard probably the Kony 2012, uh, <laughs> what happened in the past few weeks. You know, at first, like everybody else, I, I saw that video and I said, hmm, but then I stepped back 
And I wonder, is this a ploy to to convince the people or to back, to, to make the people back an invasion of Uganda? What's your take on that Coney 2012, by the way? Well, well, first of all, this this fellow who made the film uh, did this back in 2003 when Coney was actually in northern Uganda. And right. I was in, I actually have the... Uh, the bad luck of being blown up in Uganda by a terrorist group. And there was a lot of fighting. There's not just one group there. There's uh, Islamic groups. And and Joseph Kony is an unusual fellow in that he's probably the only Christian fundamentalist terrorist group uh, out there. But he was a very minor part of the Acholi tribe's sort of anger at uh, the government there. What I see here, these are self-licking lollipops. These, these are things that, these are charities that exist simply to fund their fundraising activities so they they spend most of their money on fundraising making films and you know selling bracelets and things like that uh, they in no way shape or form can go in and actually take out Coney uh, but they get people all excited about this horrible thing you know the children being kidnapped and mutilated and so on and so forth right I, I just don't think that's an appropriate use of people's money I mean there are plenty of charities that put 80% of their money into taking care of uh, the wounded, the starving, uh, the sick. But it's because of popular media and because it, it moves so quickly, people get very upset when they see mutilated children, they give money, and they don't realize they're just basically paying these kids to, to make more films to raise more money. Well, he, he, was, he was very effective in doing what he did because he moved millions of people. The question is, where did the money go? Well, they spend about 35% of their money on programs inside Africa, But the other 75% goes towards filmmaking and, you know, raising money so they can make more films. I, I don't have any problem with any charity that gets a dollar on the ground. I'm just saying that the idea that giving money to a large filmmaking charity will somehow get rid of Joseph County is, is laughable. Right. Now, how are things in Uganda now after Idi Amin? <laughs> well, things couldn't be any worse. Um Again, it's doing very well. I mean, people would be very surprised if they visit Africa. I mean, you know, I'm in Nairobi right now, and there's you'd think there'd be sort of fear and terror on the streets since they invaded Somalia, but people are doing just fine. Tourism is doing well. Uh, all the bars and cafes are full of Westerners and locals, and it's it's a very prosperous region. Uh, Uganda is the same thing. Uganda is benefiting from oil and mining and you know all the business activity. Uh, It is not the dark heart of Africa like people remember. There's plenty of poor countries and there's plenty of bad places you can go, but uh, Africa is doing okay. What are the countries in Africa that you see having a more uh, prominent position in, in the future? Well, one of my favorite countries is Equatorial Guinea, which most people probably have never heard of. But if you look at the armpit of Africa on the um, west side, you'll see this mm -hmm. little tiny island. And... It is the richest country on earth. They, they have been drilling offshore for oil since uh, 1995 and also natural gas. And it's run by a family, uh, the Obiang family. And per capita, they are the richest country on earth. And uh, I met the, the ruler of the country because some friends of mine tried to overthrow the country and they were in jail. And so I was trying to negotiate for their release. And uh, I spent a week with the, the ruler of the country, and we had a lot of very interesting conversations about how do you take a country from being the poorest country in Africa to the richest country with a very small population. Do you simply hand the money to people like Kuwait, and they all buy Rolls Royces and move to London, and they hire you know Filipino maids? Mm. Or, or do you put it into infrastructure, which are roads, schools, try to educate them? Uh, you know, how do you take all that oil money and not be Saudi Arabia, you know, and not be countries that are destroyed by instant wealth. I remember this almost sounds like the story of uh, Singapore and Malaysia yeah. when, when Lee Kuan Yew basically said the same thing. They, Malaysia didn't want them anymore. They said, okay, go away. You, you become independent if you want. And he had to go to the West, study there. And now Singapore, it's a controlled democracy where people live happily oppressed, in my opinion, but they have everything they need. Well, here's the interesting thing. Obiang's role model is Singapore. He wants to make Equatorial Guinea into the next Singapore. He, mm. he has to have a self-sustaining country when right. oil runs out. So he's, he's investing it in infrastructure. He, he knows the strategic value of being close to America and having all that oil. And 
he gets a lot of bad PR because of the former ruler who had the same name. But, you know, he's trying to figure out how you get this country from zero to 60 in like five years. But that, that is really the future. If you look at Dubai and Abu Dhabi, you look at Singapore, this is the new future of small countries where they encourage investors and money and infrastructure and logistics and they don't rely on carbon uh, deposits and just sending, I mean, selling gas to hungry countries like America or Europe. More than anything, getting rid uh, of corruption. Well, corruption is, is, we call it patronage, you know? Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not as advanced. I mean, here's the thing. Democracy works well in an affluent society, but you cannot go to a tribal country, let's say like Saudi Arabia, where you actually have to hand money to all your relatives or else you don't stay in power right. and say, oh, corruption is bad. I mean, they look at you funny like that's how things get done here. So, I mean, we judge people, but at the same time, I mean, we're just as bad. I mean, all the PACs and the ability to raise money for a politician and influence uh, legislation, I don't know that we can call the kettle black. That's right, of course. And what's the size of this uh, island, uh, Equatorial Guinea? Because I'm looking at it, and it's, it looks more than Hawaii. It's very tiny. It's very beautiful. There's a volcano. There's waterfalls. Uh, takes about two or three hours. It's called Malibu. It takes about two or three hours to drive around. Uh, it used to be Ferdinand Poe, and it used to be the worst place in Africa. It was very famous for being the worst place. But all around that are giant offshore rigs and lights of refineries working 24-7. And you can literally go to the mainland, and they've got a solid granite uh, causeway, drive 15 minutes and meet a guy who lives in a mud hut. I mean, mm. it's just a, it's an amazing contrast. And it's on the coast of Cameroon, close to Nigeria. But you mentioned corruption yeah. and, and some hypocrisy here. Because we have in the United States the, and I remember this because I spent some time in Mexico during the uh, North American Free Trade Agreement. And of course, we always had to watch the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you have these foreign dignitaries that would not move a finger unless they're paid, you know, somewhat. And you have to change the rules. And, and uh, did you ever encounter that? Well, here's the thing. I mean, obviously, we have a moral stand. You know, we're Americans. This is good. This is bad. You know, you go to Mexico and you meet a cop and you say, how much money do you make? And he says, well, depends which shift I work. If I work like <laughs> right. the, the speeding ticket shift, I make a lot of money. If I have to do security, I don't make any money. That's right. And you ask him how much he makes. And it's like, oh, my God, you, make, you don't even make enough to live on. Uh, if you go to Afghanistan, you say, well, how much, how much do you get paid as a judge? He says, paid. I have to pay $100,000 to get a, a job as a judge in Afghanistan. But I can make a million dollars because people will bribe me uh, to decide either way on their case. I mean, we're very naive sometimes in, in looking at other countries and how they work. But we don't have to go to other countries. I mean, if you look at the our Congress and our Senate in the United States, I wish somebody could make a report, really, a serious, transparent report showing how much each person was worth before they became government representatives and after or even during, don't you think? Well, well, look at Bill Clinton. I mean, when he went into office, he was making a few dollars, and now he's a multimillionaire, and so is his wife. How did that happen? That's right. I mean, did, did they get smarter? No, they just they just met the right people who made sure the right things happened. Uh, we've had presidents who didn't make money. You know, it, it, it depends on the person. But I have to say that corruption is endemic throughout the world. I mean, yes, it's worse in some countries than others, but... In order to get things done, people always find a way around all these rules and barriers. I remember in Singapore, one of the things to avoid uh, corruption was that it's such a small island anyway. But if you ever were caught conducting any 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 bad business or, or, or corruption, they would make sure they would advertise your name in so many places that uh, there's no safe face there. You would be shunned forever, and that's enough for anybody to, to stop uh, being corrupted. But uh, let's talk about the Arab Spring for a second. I mean, I remember I, I, I spoke to a few people in the area. I spoke to uh, one of the researchers, uh, Robert Bouval, who's from Egypt, and they were all in pro of what was happening there. But in your travels, do you see, and I'm talking about pretty much everywhere around the world, do you see the perception being a little bit hypocritical that we want to establish democracy everywhere, yet we install these militaristic dictators that, that stay there forever? Well, yeah, we have to back up a little bit because we have to look at these countries 
before they had oil. Like you have to look at Algeria and, and, and Libya and, and places even like Egypt who had very backward economies, you know, in the 40s and the 50s. And then they started to find wealth from oil and they had these police states. They had these dictatorships that brutalized their own people. We didn't actually start the Arab Spring. You know, that this came from a single man who burned himself, basically killed himself after being brutalized too many times by corrupt cops. That's right. Uh, you know, I traveled through Algeria in 1995, and it was a frightening place. I mean, even Syria, places that are falling apart now, all had these massive police organizations that followed you around and would arrest people if they talked to you. It was, it was incredible. Anyways, these were people that had enough. And, but they didn't have plan B. It wasn't like they were rising up because they were going to suddenly become Washington, D.C. or Paris, France. They, they just didn't want to take it anymore. When they thought they threw off the government in Egypt, they ended up with the same exact military government. And it's not going to be a lot better. If you look at Libya, they can't even figure out what to do yet. I mean, they're just, it's That's a right. mess. And, and now you're seeing a lot of retribution killings and, you know, the chaos is, is not making the place safer or better. But that's, that's uh, my point. I mean, before the Arab Spring, it seems those countries were in, a, and I'm not advocating for, for you know, Hosni Mubarak or, or any of those, but it seems that things were running better before this happened. Well, on the surface, I mean, Syria, for example, you know, they have the screws on everyone there. Yeah. Uh, Iraq, they had the screws on everyone. Iran, same thing. It, it's because there's so much divisiveness between these ancient groups that were created in these colonial structures. Uh, you cannot fix colonial map making. You know, you cannot reboot and say, okay, Afghanistan, you must join Pakistan and figure it out all over again. So there's going to be these fault lines that just never will be resolved. What really fixes all this is money and the ability to get beyond, you know, the ethnic, the religious, the, the regional strife that they've been carrying on for years and years. And, and I see it happening, but I see it happening in, in 10 years, not, you know, next week or next month. And that's true, too. If the people are fed and, and clothes and, and they have what they need, they seem to look the other way. But if they're poor, they seem to, to, to demand what they want. That's what's happening in, in some of these regions. But Syria is a very interesting place. I mean, we, we went to, to, uh, to Libya, uh, Egypt, we provided some, some support there. Why is it that we're not in Syria? Uh, well, the interesting thing is that Russia is in Syria. Russia has the, the only outside base in their only warm water part, and they sell about a billion dollars worth of weapons to Syria. Syria is right on the border with Israel, and once we start stirring things up there, it's not going to stop. I mean, you, if you step back and look at the Middle East and you look at Syria's position, if a war kicks off there, it's going to embroil a lot of neighbors. Mm -hmm. So what we're, what we're hoping to do is, is the leader of the country is actually fairly liberal, you know, compared to his father, uh, is to get him back in line and pretend like nothing happened. I mean, the people that are fighting have adopted a very Islamic slant to their fighting. I mean, they're, they're taking weapons and money from Saudi Arabia, from Qatar. Uh, they're not trying to create a nice Western secular government. So we've sort of stood back on that, even though the slaughters go on and even though we can physically see the bombs dropping and the shells. Uh, we just don't want to create yet another fundamentalist country. And we see the same problem in, in Egypt where the Islamic Brotherhood is in power. We, right. we help the, the military apparatus torture and destroy those people ever since the mid-90s. I mean, people remember the, you know, the shootings at the pyramids and the, all the terrorist activities. Uh, Zawahiri came from there. I mean, the Brotherhood was, was the, the formation of Al-Qaeda. So it is the, the root source of a lot of the Islamic fundamentalists, uh, uh, fun, sorry, fundamentalism around the world. Well, you know, Mubarak, he was worth billions of dollars, and we give uh, Egypt billions of dollars every year. How is it that he was able to amass all that amount of money? Because <laughs> he just took it. <laughs> I right. mean, not that sophisticated. That's right. That's right. Um, what do you think is going to happen next year with the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood? Well, let, let's just talk about Syria for a moment, because it seems that mm -hmm. Syria is the one that's keeping the glue somehow together. Because if, 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 if Syria goes the way of Egypt or, 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 or the other countries, what do you see happening in that area with Israel, Turkey, Iraq, Iran? Well... Let's assume that the U.S. foreign policy is to have a stable Middle East. 
and and let's say that Israel is the anchor of that, and mm-hmm. also much much of the root cause of the problems in the Middle East because of the, you know, the colonists and the people that take over uh, Arab spots, Palestine, and the sort of the, the camps there and the occupied areas. We are looking and saying, okay, Iraq can be a stable place. Uh, Syria is right next to Iran, and Hezbollah is there, and it's just it's just really ugly. Now Turkey's stable; they're our friend. Egypt was stable; they're not stable anymore. So Syria is really the last sort of footprint. If that goes, that's right. There aren't that many stable places anymore. Exactly. That's 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 my point, especially for Israel there. Uh, with the situation with Iran, and we keep hearing all the the drum the war, the drums of war happening probably on a daily basis. What mm. do you think is going to happen? Well, first of all, Iran is, is is a very bizarre place because, like Pakistan, we don't quite know whether we should hate them or attack them or invade them. And then we realize that if we invaded Iran, we would have terrorism attacks all over the world. And, you know, the Persians, the Shia Iranians, have had a, a nation there, and they've been somewhat paranoid because they're surrounded by, you know, Sunni nations. Uh, they typically mind their own business, and, and ever since... You know, the Shah was deposed and they took the Americans hostage. We've had a grudge match with them and we've had to invent things to get angry at them. We've had to create this whole nuclear program as sort of a threat, just like we did with Iraq. But realistically, Iran is a fairly xenophobic country and it doesn't it exports little bits here and there and it sort of plays around. But it's been contained and. I'm not saying that we can become great friends with Iran because they've never really been great friends to America. But I think this whole idea of injecting reasons to invade, reasons to bomb, reasons to start another war, you know, we're, we're writing checks with our mouth that we can't cash. When I was working with the four stars in Afghanistan, they continued to inject reasons to invade Iran. And the general's like, we don't have the troops for that. I mean, you, the Air Force can drop bombs and the Navy can fire missiles, but we do not have the troops to go into Iran. So if we start something, I don't know that we can finish it. And that country's massive. This is not Iraq. This is not uh, uh, Lebanon or, or Syria. This is huge. This is bigger than Saudi Arabia. This is a country that fought a standstill war with Iraq for eight years and lost hundreds of thousands of troops and didn't even care. You know, this is an oil producing nation that could simply say, OK, yeah, sure, we'll just blow up oil wells. You know, it's it's not a good place to have a war. Do you think that they could ever block the Strait of Hormuz, as they sometimes say? No, this is an, this is yet another one of those silly things. Um, the Straits of Hormuz are. are yes, it's narrow. Uh, yes, you could cry, try to create a blockade by saying anybody who sails through there gets blown up. But the people who are sailing through there are actually ships taking oil to sell to generate revenue so as much as we'd like to think that we could do this or we could do that or they could stop this no the the oil will flow because people will buy it and that oil goes to europe it goes all over the world so we would essentially be shooting ourselves in the foot that's right and as long as there's demand for something there's supply for that uh I have a comment to make, and this is this is one of those comments that get some people in trouble. And I'm glad we're not in the mainstream media, because otherwise I wouldn't be able to say it. And I want to get your take on this. You know, let's say you and I live in a neighborhood, and you have weapons across the street, but you don't report them. Here I am, I just moved in, and I have I want to have my own weapons. But then you tell everybody else that I should not have my weapons, and you rattle everybody else against me because I should not have those weapons. Do you know where I'm coming from here? I'm talking about Iran and Israel. Why is it that Israel has the capability of having their own nuclear weapons? And let's say Iran wants to have them. And I'm not advocating for nuclear proliferation, but I just want to know what's fair, in your opinion. Well, I think we have to take kind of a cold look at Iran. Iran does not have a nuclear weapon program. They do not have nuclear weapons. They, They have delivery systems like missiles, and they have traditional weapons and they have a large army. They do not have nuclear weapons. They rattle their saber a lot. And, and just like Saddam Hussein used to rattle his saber, but he didn't have a, he had a nuclear program, but that was back in you know 1990. Uh, when we invaded, he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. And we knew that because the UN had been in there for 10 years. And so had Israel and US intelligence agents. All we're doing is we're saying, oh, can you imagine if Iran has nuclear weapons and they attacked? And we say, well, attacked who? Well, they would attack Israel, just like Saddam Hussein only had the ability to launch missiles about 600 miles, which was, guess what? It was Israel. So what we really have to stop and think about is 
what is the real threat to America? It's not Iran. It's not Iraq. It's not these, you know, not Afghanistan. It's not Pakistan. The real threat is the economy, spending all our money on these wars and then putting ourselves into poverty. That's exactly right. We're building schools and, and bridges in Iraq and in Afghanistan and our own schools and bridges are, are falling apart here. And where's, where's the, the whole uh, public works initiative that supposedly our current president was going to institute? I, don't, I really don't see that happening. Right. And, uh, you know, look at it this way. People get up in the morning in America and if you say to your neighbor, hey, tell me exactly why we should hate Iran, he would kind of scratch his head and go, well, they, I think they don't like us and they have weapons and they kidnapped our embassy. That's right. I mean, it's a myth. It's, it's something we keep creating. And And you have to remember, like, Big Brother, remember the perpetual war in Orwell's books, where That's we right. always were at war with someone, so that we wouldn't actually pay attention to our own government. You know, it was something like, oh, well, we have to suck it up and, and put our nose to the grind wheel, because what happens if Islamic terrorism or, you know, Iranian nukes threaten our country? It, it's, it's a fiction. Well, it was Secretary McNamara, and I repeat this story all the time, who told Kennedy that we always needed a, a black cloud or war over our heads in order to keep the economy going, because otherwise... We cannot survive. Well, we have a huge war economy. I mean, uh, if you ever take a flight to Dubai from Atlanta or New York or any major city, it'll be full of middle-aged men wearing 5'11 work clothes going off to work in these contracting jobs. I mean, we spend, we talked about building those schools and all the infrastructure. That's taking money out of one pocket and putting another. And we're spending billions of dollars on contracts to American companies to hire Americans to send them overseas. Uh, I hate to see what's going to happen in 2014 when a lot of that stuff shuts down. When you say shuts down, meaning? What I mean is that I sat next to a guy from Detroit, a, a black man in his sort of early 50s who used to work the line in GM, and now he's a diesel mechanic in Iraq. And, and that guy was making $100,000 a year. He's, he's not going to make that money back home. And that money goes right back into our economy. So what I'm saying is that when we lose, when we lose those jobs, those are artificial jobs. But when we lose those jobs, it's, it's going to hurt. You're talking about when we leave Iraq and Afghanistan, and Afghanistan, and and any other war zone that we hire contractors for. That's right. And we have to take our one and only intermission, Robert. Uh, but I just to let the audience know when we come back, Robert has been part of the Navy SEALs. He's trained them. He's he's been with the special forces. You were even part at one point in the search for Osama bin Laden, and I'm very interested in, in discussing this with you. Also, we see a lot of private contractors all over the world that's taking a, a stand, and I think our military, our own military on the ground, is frowning upon them because they earn so much more money. But a lot of this when we return. I'm here with Robert Young Pelton. Robert, how do people get in touch with your work? Buy your books, DVDs. Uh, we have a website called uh, ComeBackAlive.com. It's pretty easy to find. <laughs> I have uh, a company called DPXGear.com. And, of course, we do Somalia Report, which is a news service. And, folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with Robert Young Pelton. It's not that often that we get somebody like him to discuss geopolitics as I want. We're going to continue going around the globe. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is Peter Lavenda, and you are listening to Veritas. Veritas. 